The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. First Chronicles chapter 5. Some portions of Scripture I uh, am able to read just completely extemporaneously, and I've done that with a couple of these chapters, but I tried to practice a little bit, 1 Corinthians 5, so uh, the names would come a little smoother for me. Uh, and here we go, 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles, rather, 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Now, isn't that interesting, brother? Speaking of birthrights, yeah, uh, we were learning about the birthright this morning in Genesis with uh, Jacob and Esau. Here is another, how can I say, mess up with regard to the birthright situation. Verse number two, yet, so, so then you'd think, well, it would go to the next. And it says, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So... There was a kind of an adoption as firstborn from uh, Jacob to Joseph's children. But Judah, you might remember from Genesis 49, receives that interesting prophecy about a ruler coming forth from him. So even way back here is recognized something, something special with Judah. And of course, First Chronicles is after the establishment of uh, the kingdom. So in any case, so Judah prevailed. Verse 3, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Joel were Shemaiah, his son, Gog, his son, Shimei, his son, Micah, his son, Reiah, his son, Baal, his son, and Beera, his son, whom Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, carried into captivity. He was the leader of the Reubenites. And his brethren by their families, when the genealogy of their generations was registered, the chief, Jael, and Zechariah. And Bela, the son of Azaz, the son of Shema, the son of Joel, who dwelt in Aror, as far as Nebo and Baal-Meon. Eastward they settled as far as the entrance of the wilderness, this side of the river Euphrates, because their cattle had multiplied in the land of Gilead. Now in the days of Saul, they made war with the Hagrites, who fell by their hand, and they dwelt in their tents throughout the entire area east of Gilead. And the children of Gad dwelt next to them in the land of Bashan as far as Salkah. Joel was the chief, Shepham the next, then Jaanai and Shaphat in Bashan. And their brethren of their father's house, Michael, or Michael, properly, more properly in Hebrew, Meshulam, Sheba, Jorai, Jachan, Zia, and Eber, or Eber, seven in all. These were the children of Abihel, the son of Huri, the son of Jeroah, the son of Gilead, the son of Michael, the son of Jeshishai, the son of Jado, the son of Buz. Ahi, the son of Abdiel, the son of Guni, was chief of their father's house. And the Gadites dwelt in Gilead, in Bashan, and its villages, and in all the common lands of Sharon with their borders. All these were registered by genealogies in the days of Jotham, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, king of Israel. The sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 valiant men, men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, and skillful in war, who went to war. 
They made war with the Hagrites, Jetur, Nafish, and Nodab. They were helped against them, and the Hagrites were delivered into their hand and all who were with them, for they cried out to God in the battle. He heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Then they took away their livestock, 50,000 of their camels, 250,000 of their sheep, and 2,000 of their donkeys, also 100,000 of their men. For many fell dead because the war was God's, and they dwelled in their place until the captivity. So the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. Their numbers increased from Bashan to Baal Hermon, that is, Sanir, or, or Mount Hermon. These were the heads of their father's houses, Epher, Ishi, Eliel, Azrael, Jeremiah, Hodaviah, and Jachdiel. They were mighty men of valor, famous men, and heads of their father's houses. And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers and played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, king of Assyria, that is, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, He carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. He took them to Hala, Havor, Hara, and the river of Gozan to this day. And thus was the ending, the sad ending of the people on the other side of the Jordan. And the northern kingdom suffered the same fate, and as you know, the southern did as well. All right, let's turn our Bibles then to Matthew chapter 7 this evening, if you would, and follow along as we look at this portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7. We have been here before, in fact, uh, about a year and a half ago we visited this passage and I addressed it uh, on a Sunday, I believe it was a Sunday, in March of 2020, but I wanted to treat it in the order that it comes now in our series. So I've redone the whole set of notes, and they're on the website for you, so you can see that's improved and, uh, I might say, much lengthened than what it was before. So uh, this sermon tonight is a sermon about the ending of another sermon. So it's a sermon on a conclusion of a sermon. And the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount starts in verse number 13 and runs to the end of the chapter at verse number 29. This, of course, sermon was preached in the opening days of Jesus' public ministry. He spoke the message as he sat among his disciples and the multitude looked on. As recorded in chapter 4 and chapter 5, a multitude is following the Lord. and We think they were there in earshot of all of this as well. Jesus pronounced in chapter 5 heavenly blessings on those who were humble and meek and desire the things of God. Uh, The people that were listening would understand from the Lord's teaching that they did not earn God's favor by such traits, but they demonstrate thus that they have exercised repentance. That's the real message that Jesus was elucidating. What does repentance look like before God? And they had exercised true faith in Him or transformed by His grace. So Jesus' disciples are those who have repented and recognize their spiritual poverty. Jesus tells believers, uh, his followers, that they're salt and light. They must preserve and provide truth to people around them. Uh, Jesus tells them that he's come to fulfill the law of Moses. That means not just to fulfill the predictions of the law of Moses, but to fulfill it by 
evidencing love for God and, and uh, for neighbor, as we indicated some time ago from our teaching in, in Titus. So he's expressing all of this to them, and he says, if your righteousness or our righteousness does not super exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not have a share in heaven. And then he goes through and kind of helps us to know what is the real intention of the law of Moses when it talks about things like adultery, things like murder, uh, divorce, oath-making, and things like that. He really gets to the heart of the, the matter, the intentions of one's heart, and uh, the thoughts of one's heart, not just the mere external activity. Chapter 7 opens with the injunction that we not exercise hypercritical judgment, uh, which for the Pharisees was not only hypercritical, but it was hypocritical because they had you know, this mask of righteousness on while at the same time criticizing others for their uh, you know, things. Like, for example, uh, you know, Matthew chapter 23, I believe it is, the Lord tells them, look, you, know, you, you tithe the mint and cumis and, and, uh, and all those little spices or herbs, but you leave undone the weightier matters of the law like love and justice. There's something really wrong with that. When you micro, you know, well, what they were doing is they were straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You know, when they said, to, you know, well, to my parents, I don't have to help them because uh, my, my money is a gift to God. It's Corban, they called it. They made a, de- a, a kind of a dedication or a declaration about their, their money. And then it went into the temple, and then they just kind of laundered it through the temple so it kind of laundered their conscience, as it were, so they wouldn't feel like they had to support their parents in that, uh, in that way that was taught in the Scriptures. Well, I think, uh, and we spent some time looking at uh, also the portion here about asking, seeking, and knocking, uh, and, the, and the golden rule as well, although I haven't put those in the introduction to these notes. There's just too many things here to repeat all of it. But uh, we come now to verse number 13. And by the way, I should add this. Many uh, expositors of God's word have struggled with just how does this passage relate to us because they, especially dispensational types like us, will say, well... This isn't really in the church age. It's kind of in the transition between the church or between the law and the church. It's kind of kingdom teaching. So is it the constitution of the kingdom? Kind of like a a revamping of Exodus 19 and 20 where God uh, constituted the nation of Israel as a nation. Is Is this a constitution for the kingdom? I think because the Lord knows what's going to happen and we know what happened, that he was rejected, But he gave this teaching, it's recorded for us, that this teaching is applicable to all believers of every age, even us in the church. We cannot conveniently set it aside. As I read it, reread it, and think through it, there is so much here that is uh, applicable directly to us. We have to deal with that and not just kind of blow it off, so to speak, or just say, ah, well, it's for another time. Because, you know, we find the um, metrics here, the rubrics rather, to be too tough for us. To do, you know, do to others as we would have them 
do to us, you know, or turn the other cheek or those sorts of things. No, we have to really deal with what the Lord is teaching us here. And this is evidence of saving faith in the life of a believer. This is not works by which we are, you know, we obtain salvation. So the conclusion of the sermon brings it all together and shows us that if we merely talk about the things of God or pretend uh, righteousness externally but are really hypocrites internally, we do not know God truly. The summary is then that there are two ways that you can live. When faced with the teaching of the Lord Jesus, you can choose one of two pathways. And if you look at this section from 13 to the end, you're going to see that this is repeated several times. You have the narrow way and the broad way. You have good fruit and you have bad fruit. You have those who will say to the Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things you know, in your name and, and all of that sort of thing? And then you have the last, which is in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, two ways of trying to get into the kingdom, doing the word of God or merely hearing or saying, if you will, the word of God, doing the will of God or or just saying that you do. We'll look at these in turn now as we walk through the passage and see just how far we get. We start out with two ways to walk, two ways to live, the narrow and the broad way. These, as I mentioned before, uh, Matthew uh, 7, 7 was a verse that I remember memorizing as a young boy under the encouragement of my grandmother, who's with the Lord. But also 7, 13, and 14 were on a little verse card that I had as well. And uh, so these are meaningful to me from a long time back. Scripture says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are two ways, the narrow and the, and the wide, the difficult and the broad. Let's think about the narrow gate for a moment, the difficult way. True salvation comes to one through the way of faith in Christ. The entry into that way is narrow because it is one door. The way is confined, it's constricted, it's difficult. The fact is that there are few human beings who are on that way relative to the billions of souls that are that have existed, unfortunately, sadly, not said with any kind of happiness whatsoever. It should therefore not surprise us to find that if we decide to follow Christ, we're very different than other people, very different than other people. You know, you have to kind of become used to being a nonconformist as a Christian, right? You, you're not conforming to the world. You are different. You think differently. You desire differently. You have different pleasures, different ideas, ideals, values than people around us. Now, note that Jesus does not only talk about the entrance, it is narrow, but the entire pathway. What does he say about it? Narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, verse 14 says. 
these two are, you know, you have the narrow, then the wide, then the narrow again. So I've kind of put everything together in this segment about the narrow. And then we'll look at the wide gate. So it's a, it's a way that consumes the entire life, not just a few hours a week. It's a, a difficult path because the holy conduct required goes against the unholy grain of society. You're swimming upstream, aren't you, when you follow the Lord. It's also difficult because the devil is against it. And it's also difficult because your own flesh is against it, right? The world is pushing against you. The flesh is pushing against you. The devil doesn't like it. So any of those enemies that you have are working over time to push you downstream instead of up. It's a fight internally. It's a fight externally. It's a fight spiritually to live like the Lord is talking about in the sermon. So when you come to faith in Christ, just know that you have engaged yourself in, a, in an unending battle. Well, there'll be great victories. There'll be some losses. There'll be many joys and some sorrows. But don't ever think that coming on to the narrow way is going to be easy and uh, peaches and cream, as they say. It's not going to be that. But in the end, this path leads to eternal life, and this reward is all the more valuable than the temporal difficulties that we face in life, isn't it? That weight of glory outweighs the light and momentary afflictions that we suffer. 2 Corinthians 4.17 reflects that. This life, this eternal life, is beyond what we can imagine, although we can understand some things about it because God has revealed those things in Scripture. So the expectation we have going into the faith is not for uh, health and wealth. It's not for prosperity. It's not for ease. It's not for likability. Preaching of the gospel in, in contemporary charismatic doctrine promises that your problems will disappear, your marriage will be wonderful, you'll have financial prosperity, and you'll be well enough if you have faith. But that's not the expectation of Jesus, is it? The cost, so-called, of the gospel is not that it is unavailable or hard to obtain. It's that you're choosing, it's that the life you're choosing in Christ is a difficult one. That's the cost. It's not what the world considers normal. It's not popular. It's not flesh-pleasing. It does not prosper, promise prosperity on this side of glory. It's initially difficult, but later on it's very blessed. So just keep that in mind, then you'll be saved from a lot of disappointment. Right? People come to this idea that, oh, I'm going to come to faith and it's going to be wonderful and good and then they realize a few months in, like, oh, all my problems haven't gone away. Why? Well, they weren't slated to go away when you came to faith, so don't be disappointed. But now, let me just mention this as well. Don't make the narrow way more narrow and difficult than it already is. Okay? That is possible. People do it all the time. They... Uh, add rules, or they make people keep the law, or they require you to carry a specific Bible version, or, or you know, they, or whatever, all kinds of different things, you know, that, that, that happen and that make that narrow way even narrower than it already is. We've got to be careful. We don't make it so narrow that, you know, it's a tightrope that only one person, you know, uh, 
or one family, the Walenda's say, can, uh, can walk across, right? Yeah, it's, it's not a tightrope. It is narrow, it is difficult, but it's not that way, which has all those specifications, if you will, of legalities and, and certain things like that. We then have to consider not only the narrow gate, but also the wide gate, the broad way. This is for those who desire an easier way. There is such a way, at least in the short term. It's populous. It's popular. People are jostling uh, one next to the other on this way, you know, all the way to the end of their life. It's more comfortable. It's less lonely. It's less difficult. It's more diverse and more inclusive. I use those words advisedly. Much of the unbeliever's life is centered around personal pleasure and happiness, whatever trips their trigger, as they say, whatever they can do to achieve that goal of personal pleasure. However, still, this is the, this is the strange thing. It's still true, according to Proverbs 13, that the way of the transgressor is what? Hard. The way of the transgressor is a hard way. Sin will bring its natural consequences even on that broad way. Um, I'll talk about that in a moment. If, if, you'd be like, if, if being liked or popular is important to you, more important than your soul, then you'll naturally gravitate toward this broad way. To come to Christ, you have to say, forget it to the world, don't you? Forget it. You make a break with the world. You need to turn away from the fear of man and instead recognize the fear of God. That's so important for us. Are you going to seek to please yourself, to please others around you, or are you going to seek to please God? Think of that question as you consider how to arrange your life. Now, life itself offers difficulties that not even the broad way can eliminate. There are problems common to both the narrow and the broad way. And we do not escape those problems no matter which way we are on. People on the broad and the narrow way both get cancer, don't they? Uh, they both have financial problems. They both suffer from natural disasters, um, man-made disasters. Uh, but there is a blessedness in this life, even in this life, that is unachievable on the broad way. And that is the blessing of knowing you are living for God and doing His will and headed to the destination that the narrow way takes you to the Broadway does not have that blessing on it. And this is why so many, so many who are on the Broadway uh, are hopeless because they don't see an end. They see born, live, die, that's it. And born, live with suffering in the world and die and that's it. And it, it can become a very gloomy existence for them, whereas we could be dealing with the same exact trials on our narrow way that they are just because of those things that come naturally into life due to the curse and the fall and limitations that we have. And we can go through those same things with a joy that sustains and doesn't allow us to come to the point of you know, total despair and wanting to end it all, for example. If, if, only, if only we could have a beacon that would alert us to every person on the broad way who is about to exit by taking their own life, for example, we could just grab a hold of them and say, listen, friend, I want to help you. 
I want to provide for you some help, some hope, the gospel message. Don't make that kind of permanent decision when this gospel is available to transfer you from the broad way to the narrow way. You still might have some of the same difficulties, but you're going to have the joy of the Lord as you go along. Now, Jesus, he's talking about the broad way and the narrow way, the, the wide gate, the narrow gate, the narrow way. But notice what he does in the very beginning of verse 13. What is the word that he uses? Enter. It's a command. Because, and why do you enter? Enter by the narrow gate. For, why? Because you don't want to go down this way Because why? It leads to what? Destruction. Enter. Command. Because the other way is destruction. Imagine yourself facing a choice of which of two roads to go down. And some knowledgeable person has run up to the fork in the road and told you, don't go that way because the bridge is out. Go this way. Well, this way looks, it's paved and it's so nice and wide and there's street lights and everything is cool. Don't go that way. Go this way. Enter by the narrow gate. Go down this dirt pothole filled road because that will get you where you want to go in the end. Jesus commands us to enter by the narrow way. This destruction that he talks about, that's the end of the Broadway, is the destruction of eternal death, or what is called the second death, isn't it? The second death, that is when uh, God casts Hades into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 14. And then it says, and anybody not found written in the Lamb's book of life is also cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Oh boy, you don't want to go there, my friends. Not at all. Now, when he says, enter by the narrow gate, it's a command, but it's a metaphorical command. Okay? We've thought about this in terms of the metaphor of going down a, you know, a fork in the road, choosing which way to go, or picturing two, you know, two doorways, uh, kind of a, you know, a narrow door. It's got a little knob on it, but it may be you know, 18 inches wide. Versus, you know, a huge set of double doors that's eight feet high and eight feet wide. You, you know, you open up and it's like, wow, that's big. But this is a metaphor. The metaphor to enter refers to believing in Christ. And the way that is narrow refers to how we thus live in Christ. John chapter 10 uses another metaphor. Uses the metaphor of the door. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by some other way, he's a thief and a robber, isn't he? He's going up, you know, the side entrances, so to speak, which aren't entrances at all. If anyone enters through me, he says, that is, if anyone believes into me, if anyone turns from their sin and trusts Christ, they will be saved, he says. He will be saved. That's a promise. So it's, a fun, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's It's a fun thing for us as believers, and it's an important thing for people who are not familiar with Christ, that he commands us to enter, and at the same time promises that when we do, we will have eternal life. That's a great promise, and we will never be cast out. Okay. Um, 
I think maybe later on in my message I talk about uh, in my notes here, but I'll say it just now. You know, we believe that when somebody truly enters onto the narrow way, they're on the narrow way. They can't be plucked and put onto the broad way. That's eternal security, and the knowledge of that and the personal confidence in it is called assurance. But there are some Christians who teach that people can be, you know, as they go along, they can be transferred from one to the other and back and forth. They lose their salvation and they gain it again and all of that. But let me say this, that although that's impossible, somebody cannot be lost who has come on to the narrow way. If you enter in the narrow gate, truly believing in Christ, you will be saved, he promised. Remember John chapter 10. He will never cast you out or cast you off of that way. Um, but there are people on the broad way that sometimes like to stick their noses onto the narrow way and try to cause problems, right? Yeah, they want to. They they kind of want to, you know, peek in and see what you're doing and come into your church and and uh, try to draw some disciples after themselves and cause problems. And so we have to always be concerned that those that are on the broad way are trying to lead other people astray. We see this all the time in the world. It's a very common thing, almost so common we don't recognize it. But, you know, people telling Christians, you have to change your beliefs. You cannot practice your faith, in some in private, some in, in the public square. You have to believe and obey what we tell you. They're sticking their nose into the narrow way and trying to get people to be messed up by that. We're seeing that with the whole CRT and wokeness thing. Churches are just following after that like lemmings. And it's a sad situation because they have to stop and think about the provenance, the origin of that teaching. Where does it come from? Think, you know, put on your thinking cap. It's coming from people on this broad way. So why do you want to have their stuff dumped over into the church and affecting us? Okay, well, somebody will say, well, but they're recognizing true sin that has occurred. Yes, but we recognized that a long time before. We've dealt with those sins like, you know, the, the idea that racism started in the 15 or 1600s is completely ridiculous. I mean, we see it in John chapter 4. Not only racism, but sexism, right? Jesus is not supposed to speak to a Samaritan woman at that. But Christianity deals with all of that. It's addressed all of that thousands of years ago. This is not like new news, these sins. We look at them from, as I said in our messages on that, an entirely different perspective. But to import all this Broadway stuff onto the narrow way is a humongous problem. We have to be careful about not imbibing or swallowing all this broad way stuff into our, our churches. Jesus commands us, therefore, to enter by the narrow gate. So, two ways to, to live. Narrow uh, gate, broad gate, or wide gate, if you will. You choose. Those are the only two ways. We often talk about one way, don't we? There's only one right way. But there are two ways, really. The right way and the wrong way. Now, uh, let me look then with you at the next verses, starting in verse 15. 
Two types of fruit. Two types of fruit. You might ask yourself, how do I know if I or perhaps if someone else genuinely is on the narrow way or the broad way? Well, look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets. You know, these are the ones that sometimes stick their nose onto the narrow way. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You have never seen a grape come out of a thorn bush. And when you see a field full of thistle plants, you don't find a single fig, now do you? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, we talked about entering being a metaphor. Well, fruit is also a metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we are not so literal literalistic, that we can't understand metaphors. Fruit is a metaphor for the things that a person does, how they live, their attitudes and actions. For a teacher, the fruit includes the doctrines that they teach and the kind of disciples that they make. Good fruit is a reference to the godly output of one's life. Bad fruit is, this, is sin and false teaching. Now, Jesus gives us a self-evident proverb in verses 17 and 18, every good tree and then bad trees. They bear bad or good fruit depending on the quality of the tree. You know the quality of the tree by the quality of its fruit. Not just how the tree appears upon a cursory glance. Um, you've perhaps seen the, a little cartoon or something of a, a, a flock of sheep and you can see one of those sheep is actually a wolf in disguise and you can see this different shape of the snout and the beady little eyes and all of that 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 demonstrate that it's you know if you just kind of look at it in half a second you're like oh it's a bunch of sheep but then if you look more carefully like one of those you know games where you find the different things in the pictures oh there's something bad in there uh, and so you have to take more than a cursory glance at it to see now we know not to take the illustration too far because sometimes a good tree has a bad piece of fruit here and there. Okay, so we're not talking about perfection. Uh, and, and you might even find in, a real, in real life, a tree that's pretty bad might have a, a stray piece of good fruit. But that's not, that's like accidental. That's like the clock that stopped being right twice a day. It doesn't really count. It's not, it's not, it's not really right because it's not right for the right reason, you know? Yeah, it appears to be that way, but it's not really. Now, if, if, if the output of the tree is always or almost always bad, then something's unquestionably, unquestionably bad in the root or under the hood or behind the scenes. You know, somebody might protest, look, everything's fine with my life. Well, why is your house on fire then, you know? Uh, why is your life producing wreckage instead of good spiritual fruit? Why are you not walking with Christ as you should? Bad fruit inevitably means that something is wrong on the inside. Uh, sometimes this is a tool that is useful in terms of counseling people. Sometimes people get themselves into such a, a situation that they can't step back and look 
and see what the problem is, and then they sit down and you say, okay, do I perceive that you may be having a sin problem in your life and that's why you lack assurance of salvation? Or you're struggling with this because you're not truly born again? And you can uncover sometimes, using this principle, uh, a real problem that needs to be fixed. If the fruit is bad, then it's not just an accident. There's something else that is going on. But bad fruit, if you have that in your life, is fixable, isn't it? By God's grace, through salvation and sanctification, But if the fruit of your life is consistently poor quality in an ongoing way over the course of time, then it means clearly that you have rottenness on the inside and need to consider the next section about bad fruit and what it means. We're looking at, trying to look at good fruit right now. Now, we're also saying imperfection cannot be used as an excuse for living a pathetic life. You say, well, nobody's perfect, so I can just go and, and whatever. It doesn't matter. Yes, we all know you are imperfect. And you know all that I'm imperfect and I'm a sinner. So let's get on with living the way we should, not the way we think we can get away with and still maintain enough good fruit to pass the smell test. Real faith is always fruitful faith, whether or not your religious teacher, and here the focus, of course, is on the religious teachers. But the Lord is saying to beware, that's another command, beware of false prophets. They look good on the outside upon initial glance, but their fruit gives away what they really are all about. Thorn bushes and brambles always bear bad fruit. That's inherent to what they are. It's the same way with false teachers. They appear to be nice and harmless, They're in sheep's clothing, but in fact they are, get this, extremely dangerous. Those false teachings that are intruding off the broad way into the church are extremely dangerous things, okay? It's very important for you to get that. When something comes out of of unbelief, out of atheism, uh, out of hatred, out of division, you know, you have a poisoned root. Why are you going to look? Oh, look at this nice fruit there. No, don't do that. It comes out of a poisoned root. Stay away from it. It's poison in the end. It might take a while to act. You know, you might not drink it and two seconds later you keel over, but it may be down the line that causes cancer in your system or whatever. The teaching of the ravenous wolves is that which leads down the broad way and it leads to hell and destruction. It devours your soul. It kills you. So you don't want anything to do with that. Now the clothing here, they're in sheep's clothing. That covers a hidden reality. Okay, Clothing is not fruit. It's a trick. It indicates deceit as well. You know, here's somebody who is a wolf, and they say, oh, I'm going to, you know, go see Little Red Riding Hood, but I'm going to dress up uh, so that I'm not so obvious. They deceive. What does 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tell us? The devil masquerades like an angel of light. 
of what surprise is it if his ministers also parade about as if they are light when they are darkness. So you ask, how do I discern? You can discern who's who by watching their lives and seeing what kind of fruit comes out of them. That fruit can be doctrines that they espouse, people or movements they support, practices they demonstrate, or any combination of those things. Let me say that again. Doctrines they espouse, people or movements they support, practices they demonstrate, or any combination of all of those. These false teachers, the Bible says, like bad trees, have an end. And what is that end? Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Whenever you see that in the Bible, almost always, well, certainly always when it talks about cutting down or cutting off and throwing into the fire, that's not a fire of purging or uh, purification. That is a fire of destruction. Okay. Um, this is not being chastised or being saved by the skin of your teeth. It is total divine judgment. Jesus commands us to beware of the false teachers because of their destructive end and path. Those who follow them will likewise be destroyed. We know by uh, observing what they say, how they live, and to some extent the lives of their disciples. As those Normally the disciple, when he's fully taught, is what? Like his teacher. So if the false teacher is a false teacher, then his disciples are going to be false disciples because they have a bad teacher. I say to some extent to look at the lives of the followers because not, that's not a bulletproof answer. Uh, I, I remember a, a recent case, I vaguely remember a recent case of some church receiving criticism because there was a guy in its membership who went off the rails and shot up someplace. And somebody from the outside is like, that church needs to repent that they produce that. I said to myself, what? That church could have been totally and perfectly sound. And the person sitting in the pew was ignoring what they were. They, they were just made to go there. They were angry. They were bitter. And they just went off. They had mental illness problem or whatever the, the issue was. You can't blame necessarily a church for producing a bad outcome. Okay? Maybe that was true. Maybe not also, okay? Um, you know, in, in fact, the, the perfect illustration of what I've just said is this. Even Jesus himself had false disciples, didn't he? He was the perfect teacher. Nothing could be laid at his feet for blame that, oh, look at what you produced. I was kind of alluding to this this morning, and, you know, the world looks at people who call themselves Christians. Look at what Christianity produced, all these you know, murderous crusaders. No, Christianity didn't produce that. The flesh and the devil produced that. That wasn't Christianity. Many claim to follow Christ, but they are false prophets, and so we can't blame Christ for that. Uh, a couple illustrations we have in the Old Testament about this. Deuteronomy 13, somebody... Uh, comes to you and entices you to follow other gods, what are you supposed to do? Not follow them. Okay? In fact, 
In Deuteronomy 18, we learn that uh, even a guy who make, has a prophecy, and well, I think it's in 13 actually, you know, he even has a prophecy and it seems to come to pass, but if he's telling you to follow other gods, you know he's wrong. And then, of course, the guy who makes a prophecy and it doesn't come to pass, then, you know, you stone him also. Get rid of him. He's got to go. That was the law of Moses. So, um, on the broad way, there are many bad fruit teachers. But as we said, they try to poke over into the narrow way and entice people that are there. Part of the difficulty of us walking on the narrow way is that very difficulty, that the world wants to change the narrow way. They want to get you off of the narrow way. They want to say that's wrong, that's, that's intolerant, that's unloving, that's unkind, that's in fact immoral, they say, because you're not diverse and inclusive and allow anybody on that you want to allow, that the world wants you to allow on to that narrow way. Well, it's not us that's allowing or disallowing. It's the standard of Scripture, God's revealed word that is describing the the uh, residents, or if you will, walkers on that road. So uh, some examples of false teaching, divisive race-based teaching that is ubiquitous today, the idea that love is love. You ever heard of that? Kind of a tautology. Love is love is a strong statement to say that any kind of love that any human has for any other human is okay. It's not. The, The teaching, follow your heart. That's another one of these false teachings. Atheism, communism, hedonism, all false teachings, all ravenous wolves, LGBTQ, the teaching that divorce is okay, the multitude of media examples promoting intimacy before marriage, the promotion of fear that encourages disobedience to Christ. We've seen that in this COVID thing. Um, Promotion of lawless behavior in in the streets. And this is perhaps the most irksome to me, promotion of lawless behavior of people in suits. At the highest levels of government, legislatures and attorneys general and election officials and, and everybody, un, un, just lawless behavior. They don't care. The suits are the sheep's clothing, my friend. Just because somebody dresses up nicely doesn't mean they are what they look to be. Another false teaching, ecumenical religious movements. Another one, the requirement of law-keeping for salvation or sanctification. Teaching that hate speech is is violence, that whole idea uh, of of, of speech and speech constraints and everything, including, uh, oh, this this is interesting, somebody... uh, called uh, males, males, and females, females, and they got booted off of Twitter for that uh, situation, that, that expression of truth. Sources of false teaching include major media, news and entertainment, political talking heads, some of our acquaintances, and the social media. So, let's read again. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. By the way, I didn't comment on this, but why is it that many people go on this broad way that leads to destruction? Because initially, it's difficult. You see that how he says? There are many who go in by it because the narrow is the gate and difficult is the way. They say, I don't want that. I want the pleasures of sin for a season, unlike Moses who did what? 
chose the riches of Christ rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. Difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your fruits, that is how you will know them. All right. I think I'm going to just pause here. I sense that it's a good time for us to rest our brains for a moment, have a little fellowship uh, for a few minutes, and uh, think about those things that we have learned this evening, and uh, then we'll be on our way, okay? Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have spent a good deal of time in your word this evening, reading in First Chronicles, and then reading over and thinking about these two ways to live, and these two kinds of fruit. And Lord, I pray that we will ponder these things and live by them. Lord, if there's someone listening to this message here or online tonight who is not sure the way that they're on, may they really think about this carefully and enter into the narrow way, by the narrow gate, into eternal life as soon as possible. And help them not to fear man, but to fear God and to fear the end of destruction more than they fear the difficulty of the way of life. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us this and helping us to understand what it means. May your people rejoice because they've heard the word and been able to spend time together and sing together. In Jesus' name, amen.